Well, as you can see, I've set up some chairs. If anyone's ever done night shift, this is how you do night shift, just to, just to let you know. Three chairs, most comfortable thing in the world in a prison, I can assure you. Um, but I'm not doing it for that reason, nor am I doing it because I'm tired because we slept on the long walk on Friday night ready for the royal wedding procession, but just because this is the way we, I get to illustrate this. Leif Hetland's a very good friend of mine. He has a three chairs message, and uh, I have a three chairs message. They're different, but he has heard mine, and it's okay. We're still friends. But, um, and it is three chairs, not three cheers. I, I sometimes ask people, can you put three chairs on the stage? And they go, three cheers? It's like, no, that would be embarrassing. But anyway, so um, I just want to talk to you tonight about what I... It depends where I am and, and kind of what kind of mood I'm in, what I call it. I mean, I could just call it three chairs, but that doesn't tell you a lot. Um, sometimes I call it my gospel. And uh, that, that sometimes provokes a little bit of concern in that, you know, isn't that heresy, you know, my gospel. But my gospel is, is my story of the good news of Jesus Christ through my life. And uh, I'm not adjusting theology, I, I'm just sharing what he's done. And the Apostle Paul talked about my gospel twice in the book of Romans. So, so it's, it's legitimate um, to call it my gospel. And... Uh, it also is good for me because it means that I move around a little bit and jump up and down. Every one of you um, came in here tonight with a past. Every one of you, hopefully, is present. <laughs> Strange what drugs can do, I guess. But anyway, and every one of you has a future. And the nature of the gospel is actually a past a present, and a future. It's the very, the very nature of, of the gospel. The gospel, uh, there's three words that I particularly love that Jesus stole from the culture of the day. And uh, I, I love church, ecclesia, which was really the local government office, um, the center of government and business life in, uh, um, in the community. I love that. That's ecclesia. I love apostle. Sometimes misunderstood, I'm not going to teach about it tonight, but uh, the apostle uh, was a word taken from the culture of the day and uh, the Romans would have had an apostle who was the lead person on the lead ship taking the culture of Rome to somewhere else to make it like Rome, which is why we end up with Roman Britain and I guess not very far from here you have Watling Street, which would have been one of the roads that was built by the Romans and uh, oh, you can see it nearby here. My, my geography is better than I thought it was. <laughs> and, uh, but the third one is gospel. And um, you know, it's funny for me that uh, the, the way I kind of say it is this, you know, I've, I've always read my Bible, loved the word, quoted scripture, but I thought the gospel was for the crazy ones. I, th- I thought somehow the gospel was those people who called themselves evangelists and they preached the gospel. But the truth is that the gospel is for all of us. The gospel is quite simply good news. The gospel was the word that Jesus took from the culture of the day because a king, when he returned from battle, and if he returned from battle, it meant they'd won. You didn't come home from battle and lose. So when the king came home from battle and won, he had a gospel announcement. The enemy has been defeated. That's good news. That means that we are going to have a better today. And not only that, I can promise you a better tomorrow. The very nature of the gospel is actually prophetic. The very nature of it. The very nature of what we believe. The gospel is prophetic. It has a past. It has a present. And it has a future. And every one of you came in here tonight with a past, with a present, and with a future. You didn't just come in here with a personal past, present, and future. You actually came in here with a Eastgate past, present, and future. And you came in here with, as it were, a national past, present, and future. We all came in here with a past. We all, hopefully, are present, as I said. And we all have the promise of a future. The very nature of the gospel is a prophetic nature. Past, present, and future. And, of course, we know that Jesus enables us to be able to say the enemy's been defeated. When we come to Christ, we're able to say the enemy's been defeated in my life. Sin has no hold over me. The enemy's been defeated. Therefore, I'm going to have a better today 
and I'm looking forward to a better tomorrow. It's the nature of the gospel. And so we all came in here with past, present, and future, and hopefully we're present. In fact, I believe that this place of being present may well be one of the most challenging places for any of us to be in our current age. Just purely being present. There are so many distractions in our lives that to be present is a challenge for us. And yet being present is the only place I can do anything from. I can't do anything from the past and I cannot do anything from the future. The only place I can act, the only place I can have any impact is to be present. It's also, I think, very interesting that if you, if you look at the church in years gone by, everything that we went to church for, you can get online except two things. So you can get this online. You can watch a version of this probably or listen to it. Or if not, you can watch when I preached in November somewhere else. You, you can get the stuff that you get in church. We used to get online. You can get the worship. You, you know, you can get the stuff. You can get people who pray for you online. You can get Google Hangouts and all sorts of stuff going on. But two things you can't get. The corporate experience of the presence of God and the face-to-face interaction of the presence of other people. Presence. And yet the Probably the thing that the enemy is most attacking in our age is to be present. To be present for each other. My wife will often say to me, you know, sometimes, you know, we'll go somewhere and I won't have my camera. It's like, oh, I just saw, you know, I haven't yet. But, you know, the, the bald eagle that flies down that picks the salmon out of the lake and I didn't have my camera. And it's like, oh, I should have had my camera. And she's like, no, just be present. You just store it. So difficult for us to, to live like that. But being present is where we we need to learn to be. And it's probably one of the places under the greatest attack in our lives is to be present. And I I love this move of God. I love the language of the presence. Uh, I'd have to say, though, I I personally think that that sometimes we we describe these things wrongly. I I was doing some training on closing worship. And as a result of doing that training, I had to ask myself a question. What's the purpose of the worship team? And people would say to me, it's to usher in the presence of God. It's like, no, I don't think so. I don't think that is the purpose of the worship team. I think the purpose of the worship team is to usher in the presence of the people. To experience the presence of God, because He's ever present. So being present. But here's the thing. One of our challenges is to not have our heads in the past. See, you came in here with the past. Every one of you came in here with a past. And your past carries a couple of things. It carries victories and regrets. Here's the challenge. The greatest enemy of your testimonies and victories of your life is regret. See, the Apostle Paul, he says, not that I've attained it, but forgetting what lies behind, I press on. I don't think he was talking about forgetting the testimonies. I think he was talking about forgetting the stuff, the junk that gets in the way. The greatest enemy of the testimonies of your life is regret. And you are meant to take your testimonies into the present. But if your head's in regret, you're not present, you're over here in regret. It's one of the greatest enemies of the victories of our lives. And if you live in regret... You have a life, a past, without victory or value. And that's a lie. Because God will take your past and he will redeem the lows and repeat the highs. He really is the God of Romans 8.28. That all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Very interesting thing about that word purpose. Now, it's not, a, it's not one of those perfect translations, but we have a lot of these in English. In, in, in Greek, the word for purpose is the word prothesis, not prosthesis, but prothesis. And prothesis is translated two ways in the New Testament, purpose and bread of the presence. 
fascinating to me. It's one of those little plays around with words. If, if you're a real student of Greek, you throw me out of the room because it's like they're, they're kind of two different ways of translating it. But I can't escape almost the humor of it. You see, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called to live in the presence. And, and what we're meant to do is, is to take our regrets and let him redeem them and take our victories and let him repeat them. And the greatest enemy of your testimonies is regret. And instead of being in this chair, having brought my testimonies with me into the present and holding my testimonies so that I can use them and share them and even, and even holding the parts of my life that he's redeemed and, and using those to help other people. If I'm in regret, my head's over there and I'm not present. But if I'm present with a past with victory and value, I'm dangerous. So regret is to have a past without victory or value, and that is a lie. One of my little kind of personal strap lines, mottos of my life is, it's my translation of Romans 8.28. I try and be a bit more economical with words than the originals. He wastes nothing, he gets you ready. He wastes nothing. There's nothing in your past that he will waste. There's nothing in your past that he will not redeem. There's nothing in your past that he doesn't want to repeat the glory of. And regret, regret's an intriguing thing. Four years ago, I, I went to the, the World Cup in Brazil. A trip of a lifetime, apart from the quality of the team. We've got tickets for Russia. We're trying to work out how to get there at the moment. That's really challenging. But anyway, that's another story. Before we went to Brazil, my son said to me, he said, Dad, I, I'd really like to go to Rio. I, I want to go and see the statue of Christ the Redeemer. You can... Blame Carl Pilkington because it was an idiot abroad that caused that desire in him. That tells you a little bit about my family. And, uh, but he said, I want to go. And it's like, well, we're going to Sao Paulo and Belo Horizonte. That's where the games are. It's like, no, he wanted to go. So Sue being mum, Sue, travel agent, and she, is, she arranged for us to go to Rio, arranged the accommodation and another flight. Trust me, those flights in the middle of a World Cup are not easy. You're flying around. It's like everybody wants to do it. Why do I tell you this story? Because we went to Christ the Redeemer. You see, if we hadn't been to Christ the Redeemer, every time I told the story about Brazil, I'd have had regret. It's how our minds work. That regret becomes bigger. The truth is, we went to Christ the Redeemer. I had an encounter at the feet of Jesus because I was really close to him. We had a little chat. I said, hey, we might not be this close again. Is there anything you want to say? He actually did speak to me. Not the statue. But what are you thinking? The statue spoke. No, it wasn't that. You see, regret is to imagine a past without victory or value. Regret is to allow the thing that you didn't do, the thing that you could have done, the thing that you should have done, that thing becomes bigger than the victory. That thing becomes bigger than the story of the redemption in your past. Regret gives you a past without victory or value that's a lie lie because not one of you has a past without victory or value but regret will tell you that you do and then then there's the future the future the greatest enemy of the prophecies of your future and i hope you do have prophecies if you don't get to eastgate school and make sure they prophesy all over you all year you need prophecies in your life and you need prophecies that make you nervous You need prophecies that put a little bit of sweat in the palm of your hand. You do, because if you don't have those kind of prophecies, you probably just have words of knowledge. Where people have told you something you've already seen or you've already done. A prophetic word, you see, sometimes I think there's a danger and we need to make sure we never dilute the prophetic. We need to recognize that a prophetic word is an encounter with a God who knows the future. It's as if he's, he's there and he comes back and he whispers in your ear. He says, you know what? You look good. You know what you're going to be doing? And you're like, no, I, no way. I couldn't possibly. It's like, yeah, I've been there. That's a prophecy. Prophecy is an encounter with a God who knows the future. Prophecies have fascinated me. They've guided my life so much in, in recent years. And uh, the... the One of the things about prophecies is, if you can kind of imagine, this is the prophetic word and this is the world. One of the mistakes we make is, we have a prophetic word and it doesn't fit the world. 
Because God's moving the world forward, the circumstances of life forward. And he's moving you forwards as well. That's why that prophetic word makes you nervous. Because you look and go, that couldn't possibly happen. That's the nature of prophecy. And fear is the greatest enemy of your prophecies. The fear of the future. Because fear of the future says, I'm not in this chair with a prophecy. Believing for it, praying for it, preparing for it, trusting God for it. I'm over here in fear. I'm in this chair. And fear is to imagine a future without God in it. And that's a lie. Because he's already been there. He is the God of yesterday, today, forever. He's been there. He kindly popped back and whispered in your ear and told you what you look like in the future. And fear is the great enemy of the prophecies over your life. And fear will paralyze us to inactivity. I I, I tend to look at prophecies a little bit like this. I think it's not quite as simple probably, but if you divide prophecies in, in kind of in half, there's a half that you can do something about and there's a half you can't do anything about. Now, it might not be 50-50, you get me. But if I, if I was to say, you know, to one of you, I, I see that you're going to be a doctor. Well, you can do something about that. You better go get trained. Because don't be a doctor without training, please. <laughs> I've met one or two, I think. But if I said to you, you're not just going to be a doctor, you're going to be a doctor to the prince of Saudi Arabia. You can't do anything about that second part. You can do what you can about that part, but you have to trust God for that part. Prophecies kind of fit that for me. But fear, you see, fear will get in the way. Fear is the greatest enemy of your prophetic future and your prophetic destiny. And fear will paralyze you if you allow it, because fear is to believe a future without God in it. And that's a lie. And fear will take you from this present chair and put you over here. February the 6th, 2012, I was given a prophetic word that changed my life. On a Sunday night with Mario Murillo, an evangelist, Hispanic evangelist, very much a friend of the Bethel family, said, Paul, you'll preach in stadiums. Crazy. You'll raise up young evangelists. Crazy. God will restore to you the reason why he brought you into the kingdom. Uh, maybe I might be able to get a bit of that. I think that maybe God and possibly Mario believed that word. But Bill wasn't there that night, so I couldn't even rely on him to believe in it. That word would change my life. I I, I could have been paralyzed by fear. I I could have completely disqualified myself. And I I think I tried. Bill sent me to Reinhard Bonnke's School of Evangelism. Me and 99 evangelists in the room together. And I found myself one day. July 2015, sitting in Nuremberg football stadium, watching a stage being erected and knowing that over a weekend I would stand and preach to 26,000 people. That I would step into a prophetic word. Here's the interesting thing. That thing that the enemy would put in your way actually became the gift of courage to me to walk on that stage. Because it wasn't about me. This was something he said. But we will allow fear to get in the way. We will allow fear to disqualify us. Fear is the great enemy of your prophetic destiny. We, were, we, we went through something that, I guess, the last three to six months of, of last year, a, a circumstance that had been prophesied. When it was prophesied in 2013, it was impossible. By the end of last year, it was in the process of happening. But there were things that needed to work out. And Sue kept on saying to me, he prophesied it. He must have a plan. You see, fear will get in the way. But we're meant to be able to sit here with our arm around the testimonies of our past, with our arm around the prophecies of our future, fully present here. That's where we're meant to be. But then there's another problem. It's not fear of the future. It's not... A future without God in it. It's not regret of the past. It's not a past without victory or value. It's actually a present without me in it. And many of us find ourselves behind the chair of the present. Hiding in shame and comparison. And we're not present. It's the story of shame. God said to Adam, where are you? God knew, by the way, when he asked questions, he always knows the answer. 
It's us that don't know. Adam, where are you? Why aren't you present? Who told you you were naked? Who told you to hide? Shame and comparison will give us a present without us in it and we'll be comparing ourselves to other people. And shame will cause us to even try and be other people. Shame's a bit like this. Suppose I came in here tonight and I thought, I don't think Eastgate really want Paul Mamoring. I'm pretty sure they'd rather have Bill. So I decide that I'll be Bill. And I'll stand nervously near the edge of the stage with an iPod in my hand. And I began to tell you jokes. I'll pause for uncomfortably long periods of time. And I'll give you a sermon full of so many tweetable statements that you cannot tweet them fast enough. But here's what will happen. You'll get a really bad bill. And you won't get me. Because that's what shame and comparison will cause us to do. One of the funny things about my life is I've compared myself with one particular group of Christians for my whole life. You see the evangelists come into town and they preach on a Sunday morning and they've led more people to Jesus in the Starbucks line on their way to the meeting than I have in my life. And I beat myself up. I've done it my whole life. I've disqualified myself. Some of you probably can relate to that. The funny thing would be that that would be the group of people that I would become most drawn to. To love on and to father young evangelists. To find myself around them and able to encourage them. You see, shame and comparison gives me a present without me in it. And if my present doesn't have me in it, I can't do anything. Because this is the only place I can do anything from is the present. Shame is actually, in my opinion, included in the story of Cinderella, believe it or not. It should be a parable. Cinderella, if you know Spanish, you know that it means the maid of the ashes. Her identity was in what she did. She was Cinderella. The wicked stepsisters, what did they do? They kept her from the father. You see, shame will tell you what you're not. You're Cinderella. And will keep you from the one voice that can tell you who you are, the Father. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit, the fairy godmother, you know the story, came along and took her to the ball and let her see who she really was. You see, Cinderella wasn't present. Many of us struggle with that. I'm going to minister to these three chairs as it were in a moment but before I do that I want to touch on something else which is related you see your greatest challenge in life as a leader and you're all leaders by the way every one of you you can't be a Christian and not be a leader but I don't think you can be a human being and not be a leader actually but your greatest leadership challenge whatever your organization whatever your church Whatever it is you do, whoever it is you lead, your greatest leadership challenge, bar none, is to lead me. Not you to lead me. I'm actually really easy to lead. I work really well for other people. But my challenge is the same as yours, to lead me. Leading me. That's the challenge. And, and I, I started thinking about this a while ago and I realized there are, there are some keys to this. There are some keys about leading me. And the first of those is this. Do I believe my story? See, it's really easy. You can come in here and go, oh, Paul, he was a nurse. He worked in prison. He jumped on a plane just after 9-11. He went out to Bethel. He found himself on the senior team with about 18 months of being there. And yeah, I did all that. What a great story. I believe Paul's story. It's easy. Do you believe your story? Because you believing my story is pretty much irrelevant if you can't believe your story. The only reason I share my story is to help you believe your story. Do you believe your story? Do you believe the way, as it were, that God has worked through your life? Your good news, your gospel, your story. The only difference really and the only advantage that people who preach a lot have is we tell our story a lot more. So my encouragement is this, tell your story. Do you believe your story? Do you even recount your story? I tend to remember little pieces, little dates, little, little nuances, little things that happen. I, I see these pieces of the story that all add up together. And it helps me to believe my story. Do you know when you believe your story, it's where your authority comes from? 
Your authority comes from believing your story, from trusting your story. Some years ago, Sue was healed of infertility. The last 10 years, we have prayed for people with infertility a lot. And we believe our story. And we see an authority in our story increasingly released. We can't control it, but we know that when we pray for people with infertility, we excuse the pun or don't excuse it, but we expect them to get pregnant. I'm serious. We expect people to get pregnant because the, the story is so much now that the, the more we do it, the more we see people get pregnant. Is there anyone here tonight? You've got infertility. Anyone here trying for children, can't have children? Any wannabe grandparents who've got kids who have infertility? You're a very fertile place right now. <laughs> no, anyone got a best friend? All right. Now we're getting somewhere. Now, I didn't just add that on as an afterthought because I was embarrassed that I wasn't going to get to pray for anybody. Because I, I don't have a word of knowledge for this. Just We just go for it. But actually, some time ago, my wife prayed for somebody who had a work colleague who wasn't even a believer. And that person got pregnant. See, if you have a work colleague or you have a close friend who can't get pregnant, I want to invite you to stand. Now, if it's you and you you were embarrassed earlier and you want to stand, I'm fine with that too. But you have nothing to be embarrassed about. So want to be grandparents, best friends, work colleagues, anyone in that category. See, we have authority because we believe our story. This is our story. We have authority because we believe our story, because we've laid hands on people or prayed for people, and we've seen them get pregnant. Yeah, even only just, what, a week or so ago, we had somebody who said to us, oh, by the way, when you were in Bethel, you prayed for infertility, and the people in that room contacted us while you were praying, and we're six weeks pregnant. We have a simple prayer. It's not a formula. It's just a prayer. Now, if you're standing up for someone else, you just took on a small responsibility. You need to pray for them. You need to let them know that you stood for them. You have faith for them. So, Father, I'm praying that everyone here that is is represented by the people standing, that they will conceive, carry, deliver healthy, full-term babies. I, I declare the original design of heaven, go forth and multiply We cancel the continual discussion about original sin and we replace it with original design. Conceive, carry, deliver healthy, full-term babies. And we expect your friends and your family to get pregnant in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Do you believe your story? It's where your authority comes from. I believe this. The world is waiting for Christians with authority. See, stop worrying about whether you believe the person up here's story. Spend time on yours. Take some notes. Write some dates down. Have a look at your family line. We have pieces of our story that's like, only you, God, could have put that together. Only you. When we were called back to Europe, we were making our final decision about whether to move. And we sat in my mother's house. And Sue had been given some memorabilia from her family. And on the top of the pile was tortured for Christ, first edition, written by Richard Wormbrand, forward written by Sue's grandfather, signed by Richard to her grandfather. And we sat and looked at that book and said, Europe is our inheritance, we're going back. We knew. Little pieces of our story. We believe our story. That's why we can look at our past and go, it has victory and it has value. But then, how well do you know you? Leading you requires you to know you. If you interview someone for a job, you'll ask them questions, their strengths, their weaknesses, why they want the job, what what they're good at. How well do you know you? You see, the more you know you, the the greater your confidence is. You see, if I, you know, we've got a lawyer and a doctor on the front right. If I know them, I know, hey, I know, send the lawyer in to deal with the legal matter, send the doctor in to deal with the medical matter. Like when you have people work for you, you know who to send in. But you know who to send, as it were, where to send you into. Where are your strengths? Where are your weaknesses? Because the more you know you, the more confident you are. The world wants believers with authority, but it also wants believers with confidence, I believe. See, how well do you know you? Check it out sometime. Interview yourself for your current job. 
Ask yourself some hard questions. And what you'll do is you'll start to grow in confidence. I had a man fly over recently from Vienna, Austria. He wanted to have a meeting with me. It's like, am I worth you flying from Vienna, Austria? It's like, yeah, I guess I am. I better sort that negative confession out. I sat with him for three hours. He got back to his church the following weekend. He wrote to me and he said, I've had the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit for ages. Did we talk about the Holy Spirit? No. Did I pray for him about the Holy Spirit? No. We talked about him and his, his church and his strategy and what he was building. And I moved some things around and I helped him with some structure and I helped him with some language. And he went back to his church, encouraged, and God showed up. I find myself thinking, no, I, I know me. I can do that thing. I've got, basically, I've got 10 questions I can ask a church leader and I can use those 10 questions to dig around and give him something back and go, hey, that's what you need to go do. I have confidence. Do you believe your story? How well do you know you? It's where your confidence comes from. How, how well are you managing you? I believe in the fivefold. Body, soul, spirit, wallet relationship. Should have been in the Bible. It's a good way of looking at life, basically. Body, soul, spirit, wallet, relationship. If I'm sitting up here and I'm counseling someone in an area that I'm weak, because I'm not managing me in that area, I lack integrity. See, managing you is where your integrity comes from. Integrity is really narrowing the gap between what I say and what I do. If I'm sitting up here and I'm 300 pounds overweight and I'm advising somebody on diet, I have no integrity. What does the world want? Christians with authority, confidence, and integrity. And we get it by leading ourselves. And then finally, do you know where you're going? Are you leading you somewhere? Habakkuk said, write the vision that he who reads it may run with it. When you write something, who's the first person to read what you wrote? You are. The clue's in there. Write the vision. Do you have a vision? Do you know where you're going? Because that's where your followers come from. The world expects a church with authority, confidence, integrity, and followers. And it all starts with taking care of managing, leading me. Do I believe my story? It's where my authority comes from. Do I know me? It's where my confidence comes from. Do I manage me? It's where my integrity comes from. Do I have a vision? Am I leading myself somewhere? It's where my followers come from. They're simple truths, but they're wrapped up in the past, the present, and the future. Back to the past. Regret. This great enemy of our testimonies. You all have great testimonies, but regret can get in the way. Regret causes us to think about what we should have done, could have done, didn't do, failed to do. Do you know it's so powerful? I look at things in my life and I can find regret and I think that's weird because if I actually went back to the same time, I couldn't do the thing that I'm currently now thinking I regret I didn't do. Does anyone ever do that? I mean, I could give you examples. I'll give you one quick example just so it has an illustration. When we went to Reading, California, we sold our house in Windsor. I, I, I drive past that house nearly every day and I'm thinking... I should have kept that house. It's worth about 800000 now. I didn't know very much on it. But the truth is, we couldn't have gone to Reading if we hadn't sold our house, because that's how we funded it. But regret will get you thinking that you made a mistake. I'm just illustrating it. I'm not living in regret. If that, just get me. I'm just trying to give you an illustration. It's so powerful that it will actually recreate your past and make you think you were stupid. So you have regret. When I said regret, was there anyone in here and you thought, that's me, I live with regret? I can never get to the present chair because my head's always in the past of regret. I want to invite you to stand if that's you. You see, regret's telling you you have a past without victory or value. Apostle Paul, in, in a stunning verse in Corinthians, he said, there is a repentance without regret. It's incredible. It's the, it's the verse about godly sorrow, but the piece I, I, I want to land on is there is a repentance without regret. What, what does that mean? Repentance is such a misunderstood word, I think. 
Repentance always tends to make us go towards sin. Think, oh, it's repent from sin. Well, it kind of is, but it's only part of it. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. You see, if sin's over there, that pile of chairs, I repent from sin, but it's only half the job. And, and repenting isn't, is, is to change the way you think. So I repent from sin. I change the way I think. That doesn't have a value. Behaving like that, doing that in my life has no value anymore. So I repent. I change the way I think. But if all I do is repent from sin, I'm either facing that way or that way. But where I've got to get to is there. Because that pile of chairs is glory. I've got to repent from sin and unto glory. And there is a repentance without regret. And I I believe that as you stand, that you can begin to change the way you think and you can shift to a repentance without regret. And here's what's going to happen. The regret is going to fade and your life is going to take on more victory and value. You'll look back and you'll go, God, you redeemed that. The value that there is in that. So just begin for a moment to change the way you think. To turn away from regret. And here's the good news. Repentance isn't like an exam where you have to get it all right in one go. It's to change the way you think. To begin to turn. He's not looking for you to go boom like that in one go. He just wants to know that you turned your head. You lifted your eyes to something higher. You, you started to see the redemptive power of God over the things you did. It doesn't matter how horrible those mistakes are. He is Redeemer. He cannot allow you to present to Him tonight a regret and not redeem it. It is impossible because it's who He is. And some of you are going to lie on your beds tonight. And you're going to see a different past. You're going to see the color, the technicolor. You're going to see the beauty of it. You're going to see his redemptive hand. You're going to see a past with victory and value. And I declare it now that as you repent, as you change the way you think, as you leave regret behind, your testimonies are going to rise up and you're going to start to see them more clearly than you've ever seen them before. I declare over you a repentance without regret in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Repentance without regret. Regret. Repentance that means I get to sit in this chair with my arm around my past. We have it corporately. And I believe I shared it a little bit in one of the services this morning. We have it as a nation. See, nations can live in regret and fail to be present. I believe that Germany has spent a lot of time living in regret. It's found its identity in war, which is a lie. And we've done some of that with the British Empire and other things that we've been involved in. And we've missed our glorious identity because we've allowed regret to shroud our future of victory and value. See, you all came in here with a past. We're meant to bring that past in and we are meant to embrace our history and watch him redeem it. But then there's the future. Some of you was there. It's like, oh, fear. I've got prophetic words, but fear paralyzes me. Fear prevents me from doing anything about it. And yet fear is to say that I have a future without God in it. My wife's phrase that she used last year was like, God, God said it. He has a plan. Now, there are circumstances in life. I, I get it. I'm not, you know, I, I don't preach messages that I don't experience. This is, this is my experience. I'm not saying I'm in that experience now, but this is my experience. These are battles I fought. I fought the battles of regret. I fought the battles of fear. The fear of the future. We've done it again as we've jumped on a plane and flown back to England and started again. Well, you said, God, you prophesied. You called us back to Europe. So we're going. You prophesied it. You have a plan. You've already been in the future. You came back from the future and whispered in our ear, I've seen what it looks like. Fear. It's interesting with fear. I think Chris teaches it as much as anybody, but I think it's one of his chapters, one of his books, Dogs of Doom, Stand at the Door of Destiny. It's very often a relationship between the very thing you fear and the very thing you're called to. My wife really doesn't like flying very much. That's kind of interesting for somebody who flies about 100,000 miles a year. It's because the prophetic destiny is wrapped up in flying. If he could paralyze her from flying, he's, 
He stopped the testimony. He stopped the prophecy. Fear works in strange and subtle ways, but ultimately fear is to imagine a future without God in it. If fear is your problem, I want you to stand. And it is legal to stand for all three. I preached this in front of a very significant leader a little while ago. I'm not going to tell you who he was, but in the green room after I preached, he said, I didn't know which chair to stand up for. So I just stood up from all. I'm in all three chairs. I'm like, it's a very humbling experience, but sure. Fear. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, and I used two verses of his. See, I think very often what we do with our prophetic words is we, uh, we use prophetic words to defend ourselves. We go, I've got a prophetic word. I'll, I'll just keep knocking that fear out of the way, but you're not meant to do that. Paul, Paul said to Timothy, he said, take the prophetic word and with it fight. I, I don't think he meant with it defend. Now, it's easier to preach this in England than America because it, it, cricket is a better illustration than baseball. It just is because baseball is it's a very, very strange position. To, to start, it's the only sport I know where you start with the bat at the back. And you have to kind of time your swing for when the ball's there. It's very tricky. It's actually harder than it looks. Because even when you play rounders or softball here, you start with the bat here and you swing it back as the ball comes. But they start with it here. It's weird. So my illustration doesn't work for baseball. You see, cricket, we would talk about going on the back foot is defense. Too many Christians live on the back foot. We take the prophetic word, which is the bat, and we defend ourselves. We weren't meant to do that. We were meant to take the prophetic word and go on the front foot. And knock that ball of fear out of the park. Paul said, take the prophetic word and with it fight your fear. Your prophecy trumps your fear. It knocks it out of the park. And you're a little bit crazy here. So get a hold of that bat. And swing it. And mind the person's head in front of you. But knock that ball out of the park. Take the prophetic word and with it fight, he said. Because God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. He gave you a prophetic word to knock the fear out of the way. And I can tell you that the prophetic word has a power to do that. In my life personally, in the last six years, it has had the greatest power to do that of anything in my life. I'm probably, well, I am in this country because of prophetic words. I am doing what I'm doing because of prophetic words. And they have a power to knock that fear out of the park. And here's what you need to do when you get home. Take the prophetic words out and have a look at them. And remind yourself. And you might read them differently because fear is not getting in the way. They become clearer. They have the power. They really do. And just remember, the world might not be ready for the prophesied you yet. Seriously, it sounds funny. But it might not be. He might be moving the world forward. You see, when I was given a prophetic word about stadiums, Ben Fitzgerald hadn't been to Nuremberg. He hadn't seen a stadium. It was three years after my word that he came back and said, Paul, I'm going to Nuremberg and you're coming with me. Okay, I'm coming with you, Ben. I'll be with you. Because he was moving, as it were, circumstances along with me. He was sorting me out, sorting the world out. And then there's this convergence. So, Father, I'm asking that everyone standing, that fear will not be part of their thinking, but more than that, they'll take the prophetic words out and they'll see them in a new light. You may be seated. And then there were those of you, you don't, you don't have a future without God. You don't have a past without victory or value. You have a present without you in it. Because shame has got you behind a chair. Shame has you saying, I'm less valuable, less significant, less important than someone else. I'm not as good looking. My house isn't as nice. My family line's not as good. My job, my career's not as significant. And so shame has you behind a chair instead of in the chair. Because remember, the goals be present. And shame stops you being present. Shame will tell you you're not as valuable, you're not as important. Shame, like it did with me when I had prostate cancer, told me I'd be less of a man after my surgery. Women have the same thing with breast cancer, ovarian cancer, even the menopause. You'll be less of a woman, says the shame whisper in your ear. They're lies. They're lies. Shame will tell you that what you're not 
and keep you from the one voice that can tell you who you are. If that's your problem, I want to invite you to stand. If shame's your challenge. And some of you, some of you, shame will keep you sitting down because you'll be wondering what the person next to you is thinking you're standing for. And I know that's true. Here's the good news. You just dealt with shame by standing up. And you can go, oh, that's just preachers. No, you stood up. You dealt with shame. You need to mark that down because that will help you believe your story. You're shame free. But here's the really good news about shame. The Bible says instead of shame, a double portion, which I think is a good deal. But what does it mean? I believe it means this. If I walk in shame, I will project onto Tim what I think about me. In other words, if I come here and think, I'm not as good a preacher as someone else, so I'll try and be them. I will project onto Tim that he's thinking, Paul's really not as good as that other person. I wish it was that other person. So Tim doesn't get me and I don't get Tim's attention. In my head, I don't. He's not thinking that because he's a really nice guy. You see, we do that. We project onto other people what we think about ourselves. And we project onto God what we think about ourselves. But here's the deal. When you deal with shame, I get all of Tim and Tim gets all of me. Because I'm not thinking Tim's somewhere else. I'm not trying to play to where Tim thinks I should be or who I think, or who I think he thinks I should be. I get Tim and Tim gets me because I'm not trying to be a fake Bill. I'm just being Paul. That's how you get a double portion. Because you stop projecting to other people what you think about yourselves and you just become you. There are spouses who project onto their wives that their wives think that they're not as good a husband as their wife would want. And so their wife doesn't get them. And they don't get their wife. And you deal with shame. You get all of each other. And marriages get healed. So Father, I ask... Release the double portion. To everyone standing, release it. Release it in Jesus' name. You may be seated. You see, here's what we're meant to do. We're meant to embrace our history. We're meant to stand on our history. And we're meant to change history. Personally, we're meant to come in here with our past, full of value, full of victory. We're meant to come in here with our prophetic future, believing that God has a great plan for our lives and be fully present, embracing the past, embracing the future, fully present, showing up. This is me. It's the best I got for you tonight. And I'm good with it. But we don't often live like that. This is how we're meant to live. It's how we're meant to live as a church, how we're meant to live as a nation. Embracing our history, standing on a history, and changing history. And just one thing to close. The only way I know to close this message, I'll be brief. When I was coming back from America, I was preparing a message. The last message I would preach in Bethel, it's a message some of you may have heard. Did you get what you came for? And I started thinking about my last point, and I realized if you go to New York, you get in a cab, the taxi driver believes he's a world changer. I realized I'd spent 15 years in the home of the brave, the land of the free. And I began to realize that God wanted me to come back and to call Brits to stand up. You see, the, the Aussies have tall poppy syndrome. Other people cut them down. The Norwegians have a set of rules, things that you mustn't say about yourselves so that you're not mistaken as being prideful. But us Brits, we don't need any help. We just put ourselves down. We just do. And I was reading in Luke chapter 4, studying for another message, and I read in Luke chapter 4. It jumped off the page at me. I'd never seen it before. It says in Luke chapter 4, Jesus returned to where he was brought up and stood up and took the scroll and declared the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. And I knew when I read that, that my assignment is this. You see, when we're fully present, we get to stand up. I'm not talking about return to where you were brought up literally. I'm talking about return to where you brought up spiritually, emotionally, historically. It's time for us to return to where we were brought up and stand up and take the scroll and to declare this 
is the favorable year of our God. The first time I ever read that out and I applied it as if it was me saying it, I was like, is this wrong? Is this okay? And then I realized that in 1 John 1.27, it says we're all anointed. You see, Jesus returned to where he was brought up and he stood up. And he grabbed the scroll and he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bring sight to the blind, to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring freedom to the captive and release to the prisoners and to declare this is the favorable year of our God. But I'm going to say something and if you take it as a rebuke, I'll repent. But try hard not to. But if I preach this message in America, you're all standing up by now. And I'm not kidding. You see, we're afraid of being accused, of being proud and arrogant and overconfident. And yet the truth is, it's time that we stood up where we were brought up and grabbed the skull, embraced our past, embraced our future, fully present, fully present, bold and confident. I'm proud to be a Brit. Proud of this great country, proud of our heritage, proud of yesterday, proud of the Wesleys, of the Whitfields, proud of our great story, of the, of the Spurgeons, of the Booths. I'm proud of what we've done, of the Wilberforces, but it's time that we stood up again, confident and bold. Father, I pray that tonight, as we close, that you would release a spirit of boldness, a spirit of confidence on every one of us, Because this is our day. This is our time. And when it says the year of Jubilee, that is the same as this is the favorable year of our God. Father, release boldness, I pray. For the honor of your name, release boldness. It's time that we lived without regret, lived without fear, lived fully present. And we took the scroll and we said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Father, release that to everyone in this room, I pray, for your honor's sake. Amen.